On December 29, 2013, police were called to a scene in the Big Cove community on the Koala Boundary in North Carolina. The body of 26-year-old EBCI enrolled member Marie Walkingstick Pheasant was found inside a burned vehicle upon police arrival. While foul play is suspected, no arrests have been made and her case has grown cold. With only a flyer circulating the local community offering a $20,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest and conviction, her family is still searching for answers and hoping for justice. This is the story of Marie Walkingstick Pheasant. Hey guys, this is Ash. This is Shiashi. This is Maggie, and you're listening to We Are Resilient. On a Sunday afternoon in late December on the Cherokee Indian Reservation, a call was made to local law enforcement agency to report a burning car on Old Rock Crusher Road in the Big Cove community. When officers arrived on scene to investigate, they soon learned that the situation was much grimmer than just a burning car on a rural road. They found human remains inside the charred vehicle. Two days later, on December 31st, 2013, the remains found inside this burnt car were identified as Marie Walkingstick Pheasant. So one feather shared a lot of her cold case flyers. I wasn't in the area or living here whenever that situation happened. Do you guys remember when that happened? Because I'm not familiar with it. What year was it? It was in 2013, and I wasn't here yet either, really. That was like right around when I moved back. Actually, mm-hmm. it is the year I moved back. I moved back in 2015. So. I don't remember this. So I wasn't really a, a part of the community then. What do you remember, Ash? Yeah, I remember hearing, you know, the story. You wake up one day and you hear the story. And you see it on Facebook. People talking about someone found in a burnt car. And it was just, it was so scary. The whole community was just worried and heartbroken for this woman and this family. At the time of her death, Marie was just 26 years old. Marie was a loving mother to two children, a sister, and a cousin and friend to many. She was loved by her family and friends, and this senseless tragedy puzzles them to this day. On the day of December 29, 2013, members of Marie's family can recall hearing about a burning car at the top of the Big Cove community. However, they had no reason to think any more of it. The top of Big Cove, it's not really the top of a mountain, it's just the end of the road. But Big um, Cove is like kind of way out there. Yeah, it's a long way up there, but like, it's a half a day's drive. I'm <laughs> just getting like 30 Cove. minutes. Yeah. We're at the top of Big Cove, yeah. Our community is mm-hmm. very small. Very small. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are communities that kind of branch off and are in pretty really rural areas where it's like back roads and not a whole lot of people live up there. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not like... Well, we live in the mountains, so yeah. there's numerous back roads. There's, I mean, we're just spread out, too. The communities are spread out. And Big Cove is kind of a long drive out if you don't drive it every day. That's true. But even with kind of the communities dispersed like that, news travels fast around here. It really does. And like Osh said, you know, she remembers seeing it on Facebook and like people Mm -hmm. talking about it. And people here in this small community have police dispatch radios like in their homes. A scanner. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they find out information kind of real time. And, you know, you don't get a lot of information from those, but you would hear about like a burning vehicle. You would maybe hear like they have found remains. So all this could be happening like kind of in real time. And then, you know, again, in small communities, it could be posted on Facebook. Yeah. So, or how many times police car coming down the road and people go out sit on the porch and just watch? I don't know if that happens in big cities or not, but it definitely happens here. Yeah. yeah, and this was on the news too. It was on the news quite a bit when it happened. So on the day that the car was found, you know, like I said, the family can recall hearing about it, 
but they had no reason to think it was anyone that they loved. Mm -hmm. That was until the walking stick family received a call reporting that the license plate of the burned vehicle that they had heard about in the Big Cove community came back to Marie. Gosh, that's a call you never want to get. It's tragic enough and you're, you're worried and who would automatically think that, Oh, that's probably somebody I know. You know what I mean? You know, I think as a mom, I think we worry a little bit more, you know? Yeah. Especially like if you hear a call go to the school or something like that. Mm -hmm. So maybe like hearing a call in the community, they knew where she lived might've brought like a little bit of concern, but you know, you never think that the worst is going to happen. Right. After receiving this concerning call, the family was informed that not only was Marie's car found burning on a rural road, but they also learned that there were human remains inside the burnt vehicle. Marie's brother ultimately met with law enforcement officials and identified the human remains as his sister. Oh my gosh. That's awful. I can't imagine. No. Because can you imagine what kind of condition she was in? Someone's body would be in a yeah. burnt vehicle. Yeah, and to be the one that has to, or maybe the stronger of the family to be able to go and do that. I mean, maybe he was just trying to spare the others of the memory of that. Yeah. yeah. So I went to school with her brother. We're the same age. We were really good friends. I mean, I, he was funny. He was usually school guys. He liked to skate. God could imagine him doing that. Knowing him personally, you know, that's mm-hmm. just how much that would break him as a person. Yeah, no one should have to go through that. Fast forward to today. Nine years later, the family is still haunted by this tragic day and is still searching for answers as the case of Marie Walkenstick Pheasant's death remains an active cold case. When you Google her name, the first thing that pops up is Marie's obituary. Her obituary includes a happy picture of her with her son and daughter. The remaining articles that come up when searching Marie's name all have basically the same headline, body found in burned vehicle identified. And all these articles read the same brief information. Cherokee Indian Police Department officers were dispatched to the scene of a burned vehicle on Old Rock Crusher Road in the Big Cove community at approximately 1.10 p.m. on Sunday, December 29th, 2013. A body was found in the vehicle, and on Tuesday, December 31st, 2013, the body was identified as Marie Walkingstick Pheasant, 26. Foul play is suspected, and the Cherokee Indian Police Department, North Carolina State Bureau of Investigations, and FBI continue to investigate this crime. And this is basically all the information you can find online about Marie's death. I've seen that cold case flyer. A lot. Like I said, the ones that are posted quite frequently. I can imagine being family members and that's all that people know of her. Because we talked about this before, about how all these women are more than just that missing person or cold case flyer. But you know, it's been almost a decade. I know. So, I mean, I kind of touch on this a little bit later, but these families try so hard to just keep their family members relevant. Mm -hmm. But after 10 years, like it has to feel pretty hopeless. Because I mean... 10 years of, of no answers at all and no movement on her case. Like, I can't imagine what that feels like. Well, almost 10 years into it, and we've talked about this with Brittany. Brittany's only six months into it, and she's already trailing off of, like, yeah. you know, getting attention. Yeah. It's like it's sad that when they go missing, they die twice physically. Yeah. And then when their story, it's, it's stopped being told. Yeah, that's true, you know. Well, and that's a big reason why we started the mini episodes, because we wanted to share that they were more than just that picture. Yeah. But the only way I'm familiar with Marie's case is from that cold case flyer. So Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I pulled everything that I pulled was off the Internet, aside Mm -hmm. from like really common facts or like, you know, just kind of little stuff about who she was. Yeah. Everything about the crime is all I could pull off the Internet. But all these local cases, like you were talking about doing Bonita. 
we can't get any information. Even if you Google it, like there's nothing out mm-hmm. there unless you talk to people. Mm-hmm. That's a lot for most of the EBCI, MMIWs. Mm-hmm. I've Googled every single one of their names. And I think only maybe about two or three of them have some kind of news information. The rest is just no search results. You know, trying to keep your loved one out there. It's got to be hard to see that flyer and know that that's the only thing that people have to go off of. Because I'd be feeling like she was more than just what's on here, more than what just happened to her. But almost 10 years, I can't imagine how helpless and how much hope's probably running out and having her case or having any kind of justice in her case. Like many families of the missing and murdered with no resolution in their loved ones' cases, the family has tried for years to get answers around her suspicious death, but always get the same responses that the case is still open, and that law enforcement officials continue to investigate any leads that they get. But this doesn't sit right with the family. They know that someone who is responsible for Marie's death is likely still in the community. And we know that in the majority of cases of violence against women, the violence comes from a domestic partner. Marie had two children at the time of her death and a husband named Ernest. It was reported that she and her husband Ernest were separated. Friends close to Marie stated that while the pair had two children together, the relationship wasn't always healthy. I couldn't find any evidence that there was a domestic violence history in Marie and Ernest's marriage. But according to people close to Marie, it was understood that this relationship could at times be very toxic. I imagine that like many relationships that require co-parenting after a breakup, that it wasn't always amicable. Something that many don't think about is that when children are involved and a relationship ends or maybe is on the outs, no matter how good or bad the relationship was, there is more than likely going to be some conflict due to the fact that even though these two people ended a domestic relationship, They still have to have constant communication and contact due to the children. I'm not with my children's father. And there were years where, you know, we really didn't get along. Mm -hmm. Um, And it took years and years for us to be civil with each other and to have that co-parenting relationship. And I imagine that many other people fall into the same situation. The extra difficulty comes from the fact that if the relationship was viewed as toxic or if there was intimate partner violence and domestic violence in there. It could always be a case where there's no reported history, but how often do we see that domestic violence incidences aren't always reported? Sometimes people are afraid to report things. They're afraid for their lives. They're afraid for their children. They get threatened. You know, just relating it to kind of like pop culture today is like the Kim Kardashian issue. So what people don't realize is what Trevor Noah really brought to light when he did his segment on the whole situation was Mm -hmm. that people don't realize that when you leave a toxic situation, it can sometimes create an even more toxic situation. Even though you might feel like you're pulling yourself away from a relationship that was really bad, it can cause something like so much worse. We don't know the ins and outs of her relationship. We don't know exactly what happened in their marriage. Mm-hmm. But we know that a lot of the violence against women comes from people that were very close to them. Yeah. And sometimes when the abuser realizes that the victim is pulling away or getting away, they're losing power and they're losing their control over yeah. that person. And so that triggers them to be violent as well. I mean, it's true. Like, just because there's no reported history doesn't mean that it wasn't marred by it. Yeah. We violence. don't know what happens in, you know, in people's because personal lives. not everybody reports it. You know, when you talk about this, it makes me think of the Pepita red hair case where her family had took her to her boyfriend's house um, in Albuquerque and he was the last person to see her. And then he said that she left with another man. It just kind of grew cold, but 
her situation was marred by domestic violence and hers was even reported and it still just didn't come up as something that was taken seriously or that they had enough evidence to like move forward yeah with like really making him a suspect mm-hmm. and he tries to maintain his innocence today right yeah you know, he says that yeah. yeah he was the last person to see her but he has no clue where she went she left with another man yeah he's just the victim in this i guess i don't know but and that's that- what narcissists do that's exactly what they do. I just thought about Pepita in this case, because a lot of these cases, even if we go back to like Ashley Aldrich, all these cases are marred by intimate partner violence. And we can't not exclude any kind of relationships or things like that with this, even though it's a cold case and we don't know what happened, even though there's not a report of domestic violence. We have to be very mindful of the fact that intimate partner violence is a common thread here in most of these cases, even if there's no report of domestic violence. So just something to be And like you of. said, you know, a lot of these cases that we've covered do involve oh, sorry. intimate partner violence. Yeah. Um, and domestic violence plagues Native communities in general. Mm-hmm. So it's just something that, you know, we kind of have to bring awareness to regardless of whether or not it happened in this case or not. I think why it's so prevalent is because a lot of the toxic behaviors come from generational trauma. And we talk about cycles, a lot of things that are in relationships that are unhealthy are so often normalized. It's so normalized that people don't recognize unhealthy aspects of what they're in. That's why it just kind of perpetuates. The kids see the same cycle and think that's how relationships are supposed to be. I think in small communities too, what we struggle with here is that people are very adamant of like minding your own, not getting into other people's lives. So maybe someone noticed, you know, something going on, but wasn't comfortable with saying anything. And I think too, like Native Americans are more reserved. And so they don't like to show emotion, especially an emotion that might make you weak in the aspect of like showing love and affection. And so sometimes when young women don't get love and affection the way that they should, the way that it's, you know, from a mother and a father, they don't know how it should be. They don't know what the standard is. So any kind of love and affection is what they want, is Mm -hmm. what they're drawn to. Um, For young men, for boys, if they're not taught how to be respectable, then if you never taught that, how do you learn it? You know, and you only repeat the patterns that you grow up in. Because it's all you know. Yeah. And what we see a lot of today in in many Native communities is that a lot of children aren't raised by their parents. A lot of children are raised by grandparents. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people struggle with substance abuse issues, mental health issues. That kind of takes them away from being an active parent. And, you know, I think that lends to a lot of what Ash is talking about, too. Now, I don't know for a fact that domestic violence was present in this case or situation, but it was reported that even though the two were separated, Marie relied heavily on her estranged husband for childcare while she worked. At the time of her death, Marie was working as a room attendant at the casino hotel, but those close to her noted that Marie had a passion for helping others. She participated in the health occupations program during high school and had gotten her certified nursing assistant license before graduating. She lived a life of looking out for others, according to her family, and always put others before herself. She loved her kids with everything that she had and always made sure that they had what they needed, even if it meant she had to go without. From what I gather, she sounded like a loving mom, just trying to give her kids the best life that she could. I really like that you were able to find this information and put a little bit more information of who she is. Because all I knew was that cold case flyer. So the fact that she was viewed and seen by her family and community members as somebody that was loving and that wanted to help others, it helps humanize her and helps us see her as more than just that picture. And I think when, you know, personally, when I try to cover cases, that's what I really want people to remember. Mm -hmm. Their stories are always tragic. 
it doesn't matter what happens to them. It's always tragic and heartbreaking. If it were my loved one, I would want people to remember who they actually were too, not just know the story of their tragic demise. Yeah, when you're looking at almost 10 years of this, and this is mainly what we're seeing is this flyer, I think it's important that we're sharing this information about who she is outside of that flyer. And her flyer is posted almost weekly. Yeah. But there's just no information. Yeah. And that's all you know about her. And at this point, I think people are kind of immune to it. Mm -hmm. Because they see it so much. Yeah. Yeah. And that's sad too. Again, we don't know a lot about Marie's life or relationship. And that is because many people are choosing not to talk. Not only about Marie's death, but also about factors that could have contributed to her death. In small communities, which many tribal boundaries or reservations are, it seems that there is a sense of distrust of law enforcement officials, which is understandable given the statistics. The family feels like someone knows what happened to Marie, but they have struggled with getting anyone to come forward with information. So how can a young mother like Marie just suddenly end up dead in a burning car and the case almost a decade later still remains unsolved? A lot of this has some common themes that we're seeing in most yeah. of these cases is that there's a there's a high distrust of police, but a lot of the cases that we've covered have been in parts of the country where there's a very limited police force with over like what two point whatever million acres of land and families are struggling to get their loved ones case on the forefront of those investigations. So it's been a common thread in a lot of these cases. So I can see why just in general, there's kind of this hesitancy to rely on law enforcement. I don't know the exact answer why Marie's case remains unsolved, but I can tell you what I think. We've covered multiple stories where the indigenous women's deaths are a result of some very suspicious circumstances, to say the least, and yet they remain unsolved. The family of Marie has given all the information that they have about her personal life and anything that they have heard in the community regarding her passing, but they continue to struggle with getting any movement on her case. And this is the case for many of the women's stories that we've covered. Despite all the circumstantial evidence that even we as common people can see, it just seems like the effort isn't put into finding justice for these women. It feels like Marie's case kind of encompasses aspects of all the cases we've covered so far. You know, there's probably a lot of information, you know, that the police have that we just don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah. But when things are so obvious, like Tristan Gray, everything was there. Video, confession, whatever. And her case is still technically unsolved. I can't imagine how how helpless and how hopeless it's got to feel when all these things are there and you need people to come and, and come forward if they know anything and it's just met with like crickets. Why is it that people are so hesitant to step forward? And if we're basing it off a certain case like Tristan Gray's case, people did come forward and nothing happened. So is that kind of what you're thinking, Maggie? Maybe people come forward and nothing happens and then there's just... I think there are a lot of different factors and I think that... It, like you said, it's like a common theme. Mm. But one common factor in all these cases is the issue of jurisdictions when it comes to crimes on Native land or against Native people. I can't speak for how things are done on all Indian reservations or communities, but I know that here, um, certain levels of cases are managed by the tribal police and court system. But once crimes rise above that level, then the SBI or State Bureau of Investigations or FBI get involved, which can be helpful in some instances, but in others, I feel like this can be a barrier. I mean, if three different agencies are trying to investigate the same case and it's flowing through all these different hands, I don't know how that could be organized. I don't know how that could be 
I guess in some situations it could be helpful if they're really putting in the effort and everyone's mm-hmm. kind of working together. But I imagine in most cases it makes it really messy. Well, we talk about cohesion all the time because of different, you know, tribal police to state to, to federal and how even now they're still trying to work on how to get all these uh, different entities to kind of work together to help solve these cases. So I could imagine if it's changed hands over the course of almost 10 years, every time it changes hands, does it essentially start back to the beginning? Or does it just get changed hands and it just sits there? I think initially the local police department investigates and then the FBI picks it up. So Mm -hmm. then I think the FBI investigates it and then it's just in their hands. Yeah. So I actually really wanted to kind of dig into what actually happened. Uh And I found a few really interesting scholarly articles in regards to jurisdictional issues on native lands. Okay. And it's actually like, you know, Congress has discussed this multiple times. So in Savannah's Act, it actually, it does lend to the fact that jurisdictional issues do contribute widely to a lot of these cases. So it's not an issue that is unknown. I mean, legislators know about it. Well, and I'm glad that you're you're finding this information because I've got to admit, sometimes it's a little hard to really understand the barriers there when it comes to different jurisdictions and between tribal, state, and federal levels. Yeah, it's really confusing. I just remember in Savannah's Act, when we, I was looking it up whenever you had that case, Mm -hmm. because it's really confusing. You need to go to law school to read how much because it's like I'm going to (laughs) pull. No, I'm serious though. Like even though like the the articles that were written, it was like a hypothetical situation out of Swain County. It was from the UNC School of Law. Mm -hmm. And it was like this really hypothetical situation of like a civil case and kind of how it flows through the system and how many different, like so many different scenarios can come out of just one case because it could be state, it could be tribal, it could be federal. If it's a white person committing a crime on native lands, it's a completely different story. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's really, really confusing. According to the FBI.gov, the FBI investigates the most serious crimes in Indian country, such as murder, child sexual and physical abuse, violent assaults, drug trafficking, public corruption, financial crimes, and Indian gaming violations. More than 150 agents work Indian Country Matters full-time. It also noted that there are about 574 federally recognized American Indian tribes in the United States. We've talked about this before, but it just doesn't seem logical that that there are only around 150 FBI agents and that they could adequately give cases of this caliber the attention that they need, especially when they are dedicated to providing the service for over 574 tribes. I mean, that's not even... One per tribe? No. Yeah. I don't know how anyone could cover or give the cases, especially a case like this where it requires, you know, probably really intensive like investigation, Mm -hmm. you know, communications with people, interviews. How do you be adequate in your job when you have so so many cases, so many cases, so many places that like, yeah. And think about like a country song. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So many cases. So many places. (laughs) It rhymed. (laughs) That threw me off. Get it together. <laughs> okay. Okay. When a case reaches the level of FBI involvement, this means that it now becomes a case that is handled in federal court, and the tribal police simply become an agency involved in assisting with the investigation. When cases like Marie's pass through so many hands of different agencies, they can get lost in the piles of other cases that land in these detectives' laps. Another contributing factor is that cases that rise to the federal level must be brought to trial by the district attorney, which in most states are elected officials. So this office could essentially change hands every four years or even more often. Not only that, but when a case drags on this long, it could also change hands of many detectives depending on the staffing situations of each of these agencies. I'm not even certain that the same person who began the investigation around Marie's death 
is still even involved. And I know for certain that the district attorney that originally had involvement in her case is no longer in that office. So theoretically, this could be presented to the district attorney for the district attorney to take on. The district attorney has to take it on because and will take it on. Or it's in their hands because this is a federal case. Okay. So it has to go through federal court. Oh, okay. We couldn't try this case in tribal court. Essentially, it's in the hands of the district attorney to determine when and if it goes to trial. Okay. Gosh. And for it to be changed hands so many times. And- but they don't have a suspect, right? I, there's not a lot of information out there. Um, the family has been informed that, you know... Any leads they get, they will follow up on and that possibly investigated or interrogated a list of suspects. But they don't have any information beyond that. Well, would you think if they had a suspect or a person of interest, aren't those normally released? So you have to think too, and I know we get frustrated because there's not a lot of information out there, Mm -hmm. but this is, you know, an active investigation. And we have to think about too, that when this is an open case, that investigators aren't going to give out all the information that they know. And that's because it could compromise a confession. So if they give out information that only the person who is responsible would know, then if it's out in the community and everybody knows what happened, then it may not be as credible if the person confesses. That makes sense. It's like when uh, we uh, hear about like crimes where they only release very, very few details or certain details, or in some cases they release details that aren't true so they can deduce the number of maybe people with like false conditions. Or maybe someone like trying to blackmail someone else, you know? Mm-hmm. State, federal, and tribal jurisdiction issues have long plagued Native communities and attribute widely to the injustices we see today. How federal, criminal, and civil jurisdictions overlap is really hard to explain, quite honestly, hard to understand. And in Marie's case, I can't help but think that this same issue is the reason why her case remains a cold case today. But you know, it's so hard for me because, like, if you have a suspect and there's any, like, circumstantial evidence, like, why wouldn't you take it to trial to at least try to get justice for these women or these people? I mean, there has to be cases every day that people know maybe someone who did it. Yeah. But just because the person hasn't confessed or just because, you know, there isn't like rock hard evidence that they did it, even though, you know, the evidence is circumstantial. It just doesn't make sense why people in these positions wouldn't want to at least try to give these families justice. When they said this case is still ongoing, so it's not necessarily, it's cold, but it's still actively being investigated. Well, so the definition of a cold case basically is that it's an active open case pending new information. So a cold case pretty much is a case where they've done the investigation as far as they feel like they can. Mm. And now they're just waiting for more information to come to them. So they're not actively investigating it. They're waiting for new leads. Correct. And then they will investigate. Okay. So this is where we really need people, if they have any information or anything they can win to help drive this case or new information. Yeah, I'm going to kind of touch on that towards the end, too. I'll shut up. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just... We're all on the same page. This is like a hard one. You know, I don't have a law degree. But I watch a lot of Law & Order SVU, and I think everything you're saying makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) We see the families of these missing and murdered Indigenous women put in so much effort in trying to bring awareness for their loved ones' cases. But after so long of struggling to keep their loved one's name alive, it has to feel hopeless. Marie's story has received minimal news coverage over the years, and now her story has been reduced to a cold case flyer 
that has been passed around, offering a $15,000 reward for any information in her death. Marie's death is a troubling one for our small community, and it is one that plagues a family to this day. Learning of your loved one's death is a tragic thing, but I can't imagine the grief this family has, knowing that their loved one died under such questionable circumstances, and the person responsible still remains free. We often ask ourselves what we can do to help these families bring justice for their loved ones. We've said it before, we are not investigative journalists, and the majority of the information that we share is stuff that can be found online or that we have learned just by common word of mouth. The way that we help loved ones of missing and murdered Indigenous women in our own local community is to keep bringing awareness to issues that cause these tragic cases. In Marie's story, the best way that we can help give her justice is by sharing her story, saying her name, and hoping that someone somewhere who may know something about her tragic death will come forward with information. And I guess what's scary is like there are people that are that there know always is just like in all these stories, you know. Yeah, there there's always this rhetoric of like, yeah, she was with a group of people before she died. I saw her on this day before she died. I saw her hours before she disappeared. Look at Olivia Lone Bear. She was what? She went mudding. She went to a yeah. bar. She was in the passenger seat of a car. There was somebody in that car with her. There was some, there's people at the bar. I'm sure there was people at this. Did she go to a bonfire too? Yeah. yeah. And everybody's like, I don't know. You know, yeah. somebody's seen her. Somebody's seen her leave. Somebody's seen her leave with somebody. This family needs is if anybody has any information out there, however small, that anything at this point is going to help drive this investigation forward. You know, it's really bizarre to me too, that this happened at 1.10 PM in the afternoon. You know what? Well, I, that, that fact just went over my head. I think when that's you when said they found the car. Well, yeah, but I mean, if a car's burning, like... Was it still on fire, though? Because if it's 110, is it a charred car, or is it already on fire? Because... It's like near houses, right? Mm -hmm. Like, if there was something burning, like, someone would be like, oh, there's fire. Maybe. It's a car, but but if it was at night... I think it's one of those cases where, like, people know things, but they don't realize how that small, minor detail can really make a big difference in an investigation. I mean, someone maybe who lives in the community saw someone driving away at that time. Marie is more than just a headline that reads body found in a burning car. She's more than just an obituary that reads of her loved ones who she left behind. She was a loving mother, a sister and daughter, a cousin to many, someone with a great native sense of humor and someone who loved wholeheartedly. Marie was and is our EDCI sister and she deserves justice. It feels like Marie's case is kind of like the epitome of what MMIW is. I think because so. Because it has all these factors in it that we come across in all these cases we've talked about so far. You know, it's got, you know, she was she was murdered. It's under suspicious. Well, but it's suspicious. Yeah, there's no way that you can be found on a burning car and not be suspicious. Right. And, you know, there's there's circle, circumstantial evidence, I'm, I'm assuming. And, you know, her family needs to, it's 10 years. And then we need people who maybe have information or anything around there in that time to come forward. And it's just silence. It feels like she encompasses everything that MMIW is and the problems that we're facing as people try to get justice for their loved ones. She has all those factors in there. And like we said, you know, she's really been, her story has been reduced to this flyer that you see shared pretty often. And I will credit our local news station. They share this flyer weekly. Mm-hmm. But I think it's to the point where people are so desensitized. Yeah. And they just think, oh, well, that, there's the flyer again. 
And that's kind of how they remember her, not thinking of ways like, how do we bring awareness to this? You know, how do we help? And like you said, after 10 years, it just seems like it's hard to keep the hope. Yeah. This will be closed. Mm -hmm. This will be solved because she does deserve that. Her family deserves that. And she's like we talked about, she still has two children. So and two children that were robbed of their time with her because they were relatively young when she passed. And their daughter was two or three. Well, and they're probably at an age now, too, where they could probably see Facebook and see her flyer, her picture, and know that there's some tragic circumstances to her death. And I think the hard part is knowing that there's probably people in the community that know more than they're saying. And being able to bring justice to Marie relies heavily on these people being willing to open up and share what they know. And another hard part is that, you know, in such a a small community and a rural area, the person who did this is likely still in our community. It's very unlikely that this happened at the hands of a stranger. If you have any information regarding the death of Marie Walking Sick Pheasant, please call the Cherokee Indian Police Department at 828-359-6600 and ask to speak to the Chief of Police, Josh Taylor. Thank you for listening to We Are Resilient. For links to information found for this episode, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at We Are Resilient Podcast. Send us an email at weareresilientpod at gmail.com or visit us at www.war-podcast.com.